the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Welcome to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. This program was originally broadcast live on 93.9 KPDQ. We hope you enjoy the show. Well, good afternoon and welcome to the Wednesday edition of the Georgine Rice Show. Glad to have you with us. James Blend producing, Dave King engineering, Pedro Bartz producing and engineering in Seattle. Today we're looking forward to a conversation with Michelle Bangston. She's an MD and the author of The Hymn of His Garment, Reaching Out to God When Pain Overwhelms. That's coming up later this hour on today's program. But first, a look at some of the day's news. So the White House intends to urge the top executives of several mainstream news outlets to ramp up, and that's in quote, their scrutiny of House Republicans one day after House uh, Speaker Kevin McCarthy opened an impeachment inquiry into the president, according to a draft letter obtained by CNN. It's time for the media to ramp up its scrutiny of House Republicans for opening an impeachment inquiry based on lies. Of course, they haven't opened one. There's the question of whether or not that inquiry can officially be opened. But that's a quote from a spokesman the White House Counsel's Office uh, published, uh, wrote in the draft letter, which is expected to be sent was sent today. The letter doesn't include the list of media organizations, although a separate White House official reportedly said it will be sent to CNN, The New York Times, Fox News, The Associated Press, CBS News and other outlets. Well, cover, covering rather the impeachment is a process story. Republicans say X, but the um, White House says Y. It's a disservice to the American public who relies on the independent press to hold those in power accountable, Sam wrote. That's kind of comical. The um, independent press. I'm not sure how long it's been since we've had that. And in the modern media environment where everyday liars and hucksters peddle disinformation and lies everywhere from Facebooks to Fox process stories that fail to unpack the illegitimacy of the claims of which House Republicans are basing all their actions only serve to generate confusion, put false premises in people's feeds and obscure the truth. Sam's continued. Well, the official White House letter comes as McCarthy announced an impeachment inquiry into the president's alleged involvement and influence in his son's foreign business dealings, particularly relating to the Ukrainian energy company Burisma. The inquiry was greenlighted without a House vote. Well, the speaker noted that House Oversight Committee Chair Comer, with the help of House Judiciary Committee Chair Jordan, will continue leading the investigation effort into whether the president during the House GOP's investigation showed preferential treatment to Hunter Biden because of his relationship with the then vice president, now president. Well, New Hampshire shut down the gamut to block Trump from the primary ballot, snubbing DNC election calendar. Well, the top election official in New Hampshire says he won't invoke the 14th Amendment of the U.S. Constitution in order to block former President Donald Trump from the ballot and the state that holds the first primary in the Republican nominating calendar. New Hampshire Secretary of State Dave Scanlon at a news conference earlier today at the State House in Concord. He also announced that 
The filing period for the 2024 presidential primary will start on October 11th, meaning it's nearly all but certain the date of the contest will lead to a collision with the Democratic National Committee. At the news conference, called in part to address legal efforts by some Republicans in New Hampshire to prevent the former president from getting his name on the 2024 ballot, Scanlon said that as long as Trump submits his declaration of candidacy and signs it under the penalties of perjury, pays the $1,000 filing fee, his name will appear on the presidential primary ballot. Tuberville says House GOP has to stop wasting time with the Biden impeachment. The senator from uh, the Republican from Alabama said House Republicans must not waste time and deliver an ironclad case to impeach President Biden for the effort to succeed in the Senate. Tuberville on Tuesday joined a growing chorus of Republican senators who were skeptical of the House GOP impeachment inquiry. He said the Senate couldn't get the votes to convict Biden in an impeachment trial, but hoped the House at least would get the truth concerning the abuse of power and corruption allegations made against the president. You don't bring a vote to the floor unless you are pretty sure you can get the amount of votes that should be number, but amount of votes that you need. Tuberville said, speaking on NBC's Meet the Press now. I know that wouldn't make it to anywhere over here in the Senate. That's probably wouldn't even wouldn't even let it be um, come to the floor. But again, this is all up to the House. We got enough problems going on right now. End quote. Well, House Speaker Kevin McCarthy on Tuesday said House Republicans have uncovered serious and credible allegations into President Biden's conduct that will serve as the basis of the impeachment inquiry. Meanwhile, Senator Mitt Romney announced that he won't seek re-election in 2024, bashing Trump and Biden on the way down. Senator Romney, the Republican from Utah, announced today that he's not seeking re-election in 2024 in a statement bashing both the presidents, former and present, while calling for a new generation of leaders. I have spent my last 25 years in public service of a kind or another. Uh, At the end of another term, I'd be in the middle 80s. Frankly, it's time for a new generation of leaders. They're the ones that need to make the decisions that will shape the world they will be living in, Romney said in his statement. While I'm not running for re-election, I'm not retiring from the fight. I'll be your U.S. um, senator until January of 2025. I will keep working on these and other issues, and I will advance our state's numerous priorities. I look forward to working with you and with folks across our state and nation in that endeavor, Romney said. It comes as questions have swirled over his political future. Romney said it uh, comes, uh, I should say, who was the GOP's presidential candidate in 2012. He's faced blowback from his own party over his vocal criticism of Trump. Romney had voted to convict Trump in both of his impeachment trials. Well, convicted killer Danello Cavalcante, he's uh, been captured in Pennsylvania nearly two weeks after his prison escape. Uh, He'd been captured alive in Pennsylvania after he escaped from Chester County Prison. He eluded authorities, actually was more of a jail than a prison, but nonetheless, he eluded authorities for nearly two weeks. State uh, police announced Wednesday morning the 34-year-old was surrounded and taken by surprise in northern Chester County shortly after 8 a.m., Uh, Pennsylvania State Police Lieutenant Colonel George Bivens said during a news conference, Governor Josh Shapiro told reporters that not a single shot was fired. An aircraft using thermal technology led tactical teams of state police and U.S. border agents to the fugitive's location around 1 a.m., but a storm with severe lightning prevented Cavalcanti's uh, immediate capture. 
The uh, team kept the location surrounded and to prevent his escape until they were able to provide coverage. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Quick break. Just a reminder, coming up later this hour, Michelle Bingstam, Dr. Bingstam, the author of The Hymn of His Garment. Stay with us. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Hey, welcome back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show, anticipating a conversation with Dr. Michelle Bingstam. She's the author of The Hymn of His Garment, Reaching Out to God When Pain Overwhelms. That's coming up later this hour. Well, Vladimir Putin has been left humiliated, some suggest, after he had to travel to the far end of Russia to meet North Korean dictator Kim Jong-un and plead for ammunition. A retired U.S. General, uh, general has said Ben Hodges, a former commander of U.S. forces in Europe, said the fact that Putin is having to plead with Kim for aging ammunition and rockets to help with his grinding war in Ukraine is a clear sign of his isolation and desperation. General Hodges um added that while the Russian warmonger would hope that the supply of such ammunition would help with this assault, it will only extend his war effort for a few more months in a move that will uh, see thousands more Russian soldiers die for no reason other than Putin's personal ambitions. A desperate Putin greeted Kim in Russia's modern space rocket launch site today with an enthusiastic handshake that lasted 40 seconds in a rear a uh, rather rare summit that the U.S. warns could see North Korea supply Moscow with much needed artillery shells and anti-tank missiles to use in Ukraine. This is a humiliation for Putin and his regime. The Russian defense industry is in tatters thanks to sanctions and years of corruption. General Hodges told Mail Online going to the far end of Russia to meet with Kim Jong-un and plead for ammunition is a clear statement of Russia's isolation and desperation. Representative um, Scott Perry, Republican out of Pennsylvania, called out a journalist on Tuesday for claiming that Americans can't see evidence that President Biden has committed wrongdoing worthy of impeachment. The GOP lawmaker pointed out several examples of evidence of the president's corruption in response to a question reportedly from U.K. Channel 4 Washington correspondent. He also said that many Americans are in the dark about it because mainstream reporters like her don't report on it. The exchange happened during a press conference held by members of Congress outside Capitol on Tuesday, hours after Speaker McCarthy announced a congressional impeachment inquiry into President Biden. Border Patrol leadership last month set daily book out targets for its sectors in order to keep escalating numbers of migrants in custody at a manageable level, including potentially increasing releases into the U.S. interior as agents continue to see a rise in numbers at the southern border. An internal August 8th email from an acting deputy chief of Border Patrol field chiefs and deputies said that sectors are facing an influx that is outpacing the number of migrants being either released or transferred to Immigration and Customs Enforcement for removal. Uh, The email says daily encounters continue to surpass the daily permanent bookouts and in-custody numbers continue to rise, creating significant risk to agents and detainees. This level of detention numbers has also resulted in increased manpower requirements impacting border security efforts. An Oregon law dubbed the nation's most extreme gun control measure heads to trial next week in a case that has drawn close attention from firearm advocates and opponents alike. I have never seen this many people so interested in a legal proceeding, attorney Tony Aiello Jr. told reporters. This case is about a bare majority of voters passing a poorly written ballot measure that erodes and I would say erases a constitutional right, he added. 
He's representing a pair of Harney County gun owners challenging Measure 114 under the Oregon Constitution. Oregonians passed the measure last November with 50.65 percent of the vote, with voters in just six of the state's 36 counties supporting it. The law, which groups like the NRA legislative arm deem the nation's most extreme gun control initiative, requires a permit to purchase any gun and bans the sale of magazines capable of holding more than 10 rounds. The law hasn't taken effect due to immediate legal challenges at both the federal and state levels. The New Mexico Senate's Republican leader is set to file a lawsuit against Democrat Governor Michelle Luan Grisham in an effort to stop her gun carry ban. New Mexico State Senator Gregory Baca said in his lawsuit filed in conjunction with New Mexico House Minority Leader Ryan Lane in his response to the governor's order cast as a public health measure barring the concealed and open carriage of firearms in Albuquerque for at least 30 days. We are going to file suit against her this week, most likely today or tomorrow. And that was today because of its blatant unconstitutionality, referring to the Second Amendment right to bear arms. A lawyer, he says he thinks that it doesn't need to go to the Supreme Court because it's so clearly a violation of our Constitution, referring to the state, both nationally and at the state level. The New Mexico Senate GOP leader said there are six lawsuits already filed against the the, uh, uh, governor and that he and his colleagues will be filing at the state court, um, uh, the state court level with the Supreme Court of New Mexico. The White House deleted a post on President Biden's account that apparently confused the Vietnamese National Assembly chairman with the country's president. On Monday, the president's official White House account on X, formerly known as Twitter, thanked Vietnamese President Vo Van Thong uh, after his visit to the Asian nation, saying to the president, thank you for such a productive meeting. Biden's tweet said, well, this partnership is about unleashing our people's potential and with it a range of incredible possibilities, the president continued. However, the photo that was posted of him shaking hands with the Vietnamese president was not of the Asian country's president. Rather, the photo was of Biden shaking hands with Vietnamese National Assembly chairman uh, Vyong Den Hu. Uh, Biden's post has since been deleted, but not before some users online torched him over the misnomer. Now, you and I both know President Joe Biden, for that matter, Barack Obama, George Bush, none of them sits down at their computer and posts this themselves. So it wasn't really the president posting it. It certainly was inept of the person who did. Uh, but they're torching the president for this um, misunderstanding, although he did misname in addition to mispost. The White House and officials in President Biden's administration are claiming that Bidenomics is working despite a decrease in household income and an increase in the poverty rate. Data released by the United States Census Bureau on Tuesday revealed that the real median household income fell from $76,330 in 2021 to $74,580 in 2022, the drop of 2.3%. While the official poverty rate remained statistically unchanged from 21 to 22, the supplemental poverty measure rate, which measures the participation in government programs, increased to 12.4% in 2022, up 4.6% from the previous year. The supplemental poverty measure, child poverty uh, rate, more than doubled to 12.4% in 22. Um, during an uh, early August interview with CNN, White House Press Secretary Karine Jean-Pierre said Bidenomics is working when people look at the data. When reached for comment, a White House spokesperson referred um, to a statement from Biden on the new uh, census data, which attempts to blame Republicans for the rise in poverty. 
It's interesting how previous generations are um, supposed to take the blame for what the current administration is either doing or failing to do. Author Walter Isaacson acknowledged a mistake in his much-anticipated biography of Elon Musk that came out this week to characterize the tech mogul as putting his finger on the scale in favor of Russia. Isaacson wrote that Musk suddenly cut off Ukraine's access to his Starlink Internet system, which is operated by SpaceX, ahead of a planned 2022 underwater drone attack on a Russian fleet in Crimea. He secretly told his engineers to turn off coverage within 100 kilometers of the Crimean um, coast, Isaacson wrote. As a result, when the Ukrainian drone subs uh, got near the Russian fleet, uh, they lost connectivity and washed ashore harmlessly. Well, Musk countered that. That was inaccurate in a post on X, formerly known as Twitter. In an appearance Tuesday on America's newsroom, Isaacson said that he did, in fact, make a mistake in how he initially characterized Musk's actions. But, of course, the book is now in print and available. President Biden just quietly created the largest student debt handout program in U.S. history. In June, the Supreme Court struck down the White House's plan to cancel $430 billion in student loan debt. The president's debt cancellation plan would have been the biggest student debt handout in history had it not been widely uh, unconstitutional. Undeterred, the administration has rolled out smaller debt relief programs in the wake of the Supreme Court decision, and it is announced that it is in the process of developing an even larger debt cancellation plan in the near future, one that will likely also be challenged in court. However, as important as these legal and political battles are, a much more significant policy has also been put into place by the White House. And unlike the others, it has received very little attention from the press or members of Congress. If it is allowed to remain in place, it will cost at minimum hundreds of billions of dollars over the next two decades. Over a long enough period, it will likely surpass one trillion dollars, making it the most expensive debt cancellation plan ever created. The reason so few people are talking about the new debt cancellation plan is because it's buried in a new student debt repayment plan. Hey, we are going to take a break. When we return, Dr. Michelle Benstam, author of The Hem of His Garden, Garment, rather, Reaching Out to uh, God When Pain Overwhelms. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Hey, welcome back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Well, having personally experienced the trials and hardships of physical, emotional, relational, and spiritual pain, my next guest, author and podcaster Dr. Michelle Benson, She gives hope to the hurting in her new book, The Hem of His Garment, Reaching Out to God When Pain Overwhelms. As a board-certified clinical neuropsychologist, she offers a unique expertise that combines years of clinical study with deep biblical application to give readers a more holistic understanding of their pain and their place in God's kingdom. She points readers toward the God who heals and delivers. In the first part of her book, she writes, this book is forged through the crucible of pain and is dedicated to all my fellow pain sufferers because you understand, but also because you need to know someone understands you. We're going to talk with uh, Dr. Bankson in a moment. She's an international speaker, a national and international media resource on mental health and best-selling award-winning author. She is host of the award-winning podcast, Your Hope-Filled Perspective, a board-certified clinical neuropsychologist in private practice. Dr. Bankson blogs regularly and offers a wide variety of resources on her website. Dr. Michelle, thank you so much for joining us today. It's my honor to be with you. I just know you've got some listeners who are in pain and in need of encouragement. This is a difficult subject because if we're not currently in pain, chances are at some point 
in our uh, in our future, we will be of one sort or another. And you don't write just about one type of pain, but the whole swath of uh, of versions of pain that we can endure. And I think that's so important in any conversation about pain is to recognize that while we're all familiar with physical pain, whether it's a sprained ankle or a sunburn, other people are going through other types of pain, including the emotional and relational, even financial and spiritual pain. So when we talk about pain, we need to really be cognizant of the fact that probably we're in community with lots of people who are struggling in silence. Yeah, yeah. Now, you've experienced many years of chronic pain. Uh, However, you have remained hopeful for yourself and for other people, the people that you minister to. Where do you draw your strength from, uh, not only to to minister to yourself, if you will, but also to encourage others? Well, I've taken a lesson out of Scripture where we're told that David encouraged himself in the Lord. And that's what we have to do. So during those times when pain has been just so severe that I wasn't sure I wanted to go on, I've had to turn to some of our biblical greats, like Job and the woman with the issue of blood, who endured great suffering. And yet through it, they enacted their faith. They kept their faith and their faith was rewarded. And I believe God wants us to do that as well. One of the things I often hear said, and you address this Uh, in the book, The Hem of His Garment as well, is the common cliche, God never gives us more than we can handle. Uh, Is there truth? Is that a biblical uh, principle? And if not, what does the Bible actually teach us? I've never found that to be recorded anywhere in Scripture. In fact, I hear quite the opposite. I hear Jesus say, in this world, you will experience trials, but take heart because I have overcome the world. We haven't overcome it, but Jesus has. And we see countless examples in scriptures of biblical greats who in and of themselves, they were weak. But when they had the strength that God gave them, they were able to get through some very painful trials. But I think so often, Georgie, people want to help and they want to say something comforting. Mm -hmm. And so they'll make a comment like that. God never gives us anything more than we can handle, but that's just not true. And what I've learned in my own pain is that it's during those times when I don't think I can do it in my own strength that I realize just how dependent I am on God. Yeah, I just had a conversation like that with one of my dearest friends. That is so true. And if we imagine that if we can just muster up our own strength, we can uh, over overcome a situation, then we're missing out on, I think, one of the best benefits of having to endure and struggle through pain. Lots of people who are experiencing uh, pain, whether it's physical, emotional or relational, get stuck and it's difficult to know how to move forward. What are some practical ways that you can um, we can begin to move through our pain? And is that the right approach to move through it? I do believe that's the right approach. God wants to bring us through. He tells us in Isaiah that, you know, when the floodwaters arise, they will not overtake you. And when you go through the flames, you will not come out smelling like smoke. So I do think God wants us to go through. But sometimes I think we put so much pressure on ourselves that we have to do something. When in reality, I think God wants us to rest and to lean on Him. And trying to get through pain often means taking one moment at a time. I know when my husband was diagnosed with cancer and then later when I was diagnosed with cancer, people would say, I'm sure you're just taking one day at a time. And I looked at them and said, in all honesty, I'm taking five minutes at a time. 
And then I'm asking God to give me strength for the next five minutes. So one of the ways that we can get through pain is to not look back and regret, but also not look too far forward in our pain. Because our pain wants us to believe life will always be this way. We will never get any better. But if we will stay focused on God in the moment, then we don't catastrophize the situation and we give an opportunity for him to comfort us with the comfort that only he can provide. You write in your introduction, years of enduring different types of pain have humbled me and made me grateful for the pain Christ experienced on our behalf. Oftentimes when we're in the midst of pain, that can be a distraction. It can discourage us. We forget uh, that he has endured uh, pain on our behalf. What do you say to the one who is just feeling like God is not speaking that uh, that healing should be the only response to my cry for relief uh, and and uh, just enduring what is currently a, an overwhelming situation. First, I would say you are not alone. In our pain, we are tempted to believe that we're alone, but that's a lie from the enemy. God is with you. Scripture promises that God is close to the brokenhearted and rescues those who are crushed in spirit. But I want you to know that Jesus understands your pain because he went through such unimaginable pain for us to show us, to demonstrate how much he loves us. But I know when you want that answer, you want that healing, that it sometimes feels like when you most need to hear from God, he seems the most silent. But I would encourage you that it's during those times that God is working behind the scenes. We can't always see what he's doing, but that's the time when he most wants us to enact our faith and do like the woman with the issue of blood and continue reaching out to the hem of his garment in faith, trusting and believing that he has not left you. He will never leave you. And he is working on your behalf because we know from scripture that we're told God never withholds any good thing from his children. But we don't have the same eternal perspective that God does. So that's when we have to trust that if our healing today was good for us, God would provide it. But I think so often God is working on healing other areas of our lives before that area that we think is most important. Mm -hmm. We're talking about the book, The Hymn of His Garment, talking with Dr. Michelle Bingson. We're going to take a quick break, but we'll continue our conversation. Stay with us. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Hey, welcome back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show, continuing my conversation with Dr. Michelle Bingson, author of The Hymn of His Garment, reaching out to God when pain overwhelms. Now, just before the break, it seemed that you were suggesting that there is purpose in our pain, that what God allows has purpose rather than uh, it being punitive. I think oftentimes when pain is chronic, uh, regardless of what type it is, we assume that this is a punishment rather than a teachable moment. How would you characterize uh, pain in the life of a believer? I think that is so true that in our pain, we can feel like God is punishing us. But I've come to realize that that couldn't be further from the truth. God doesn't use pain to punish us. In fact, I don't think pain and suffering were ever God's intention. But the fall of Satan from heaven brought pain into our lives. And I think what's so important to remember is that if we will allow it, pain has the opportunity to give us some amazing gifts. One is to teach us just very little, how little control we have in this life. 
we strive for control. And that's one of the reasons why pain is so difficult, because we often try everything that we know to do, just like the woman with the issue of blood, and often it doesn't bring about our healing. But when we get to the point that we realize that we serve a very sovereign God who is in control, that can take some of the pressure off of us. But there's also that gift that we alluded to before the break, and that's the fact that pain can teach us just how much God wants us to depend on Him. Mm. And there's no safer place for us to be than when we get to the point where we sit at His feet and say, I'm going to trust you with this. I may not like my situation, but I trust you because you are good, because you are faithful. And that's the other gift is that in our pain, if we're looking for it, it can teach us so much about God's character, about how He is good, even when our circumstances are not good, and how He is faithful, even when those around us may get tired of hearing about our pain. He is good, He is faithful, He is loving, and He wants the best for us. So there are gifts to be had that come out of a very painful time. And quite honestly, Georgine, if, if God had healed me as quickly from chronic pain as I wanted, it would not have been for my good because I know myself well enough to know I've got a very short memory and I would have gone back to doing things in my own way and just kind of put God on the shelf. I've got this, God. I'll let you know when I need your help. But because I've had to endure with the pain, it keeps me focused on God. And that's a much safer place to be. You are a neuropsychologist. You've studied the brain extensively. How do our thoughts impact our health? You know, the scripture has a lot to say about um, what we think and what we say. What have you learned about studying the, the brain that would indicate that what we uh, think uh, does, in fact, impact our health? Well, what I've seen in over 30 years as a neuropsychologist is that our thoughts are directly correlated to our health. Some of those who are most infirm are those who harbor the most bitterness, resentment, anger, and unforgiveness. It's so important that we pay attention to the thoughts that we're having, recognize where they're coming from, and then determine whether or not they align with God's Word. Scripture tells us that life and death are in the tongue, and we get to choose which direction we want to go. But we have to do that by first paying attention to our thoughts and then determining, are they coming in alignment with what God's truth says? Or are they coming from the enemy of our soul? So very important. Have you experienced healing in a way that you didn't expect? And uh, how did that or what did that teach you about God? I did. I went through a time about a decade ago where I was deathly ill. I had been working at my private practice and my husband was diagnosed with cancer. So I jumped in and did more to make up for what he wasn't able to do. And long story short, I became deathly ill. I was I underwent emergency surgery twice. I was put on medically induced bed rest for five months. I was kept alive on IV hydration and nutrition, and I dwindled from 113 pounds down to a skeletal 74. And Mm -hmm. the longer I remain ill, the more depression got a foothold to the point where I remember crying out to God and saying, if this is going to be my life, I'm not sure I want to go on living. And it was during that time that I wanted physical healing more than anything. But it was during that time that God taught me about himself and changed and healed my relationship with him. Because you see, I had grown up in 
a religion that taught me I had to earn God's love. So by doing more, I thought I was going to receive more of God's love. And what I realized during that time when I was so sick was that if I went back to my private practice and continued working 100 hours a week, God was not going to love me anymore. And if I never went back and saw another patient, he was not going to love me any less because he loves me not for what I do, but because I'm his. And that was the greatest healing I could have experienced Mm. and did. Mm. Now, the title of the book is The Hymn of His Garment. It references, as you've mentioned a couple of times, the story in the Gospels of the woman uh, who um, touched the hem of his garment. I don't want to assume that everyone listening knows that story, but could you tell it to us and then apply how that um, or tell us how that applies to our lives as well? I would be happy to. This is a woman who in that culture, she suffered from continuous bleeding for 12 years. And according to the traditions in that culture, someone who was bleeding was considered unclean. And so they had to be kept apart from the rest of society. So this poor woman was bleeding for 12 years, was ostracized from her community. Scripture tells us that she spent all of her finances going to seek doctors and she only got worse. And I would imagine she went through some relational pain as well from people who rejected her and maybe even some spiritual pain in knowing that God can heal, but for some reason had not yet healed her. And scripture tells us that she enacted her faith. She went out into society, found Jesus and touched the hem of his garment because she had faith that just touching the hem would make her well. And it did. And then Jesus asked, who touched me? And his disciples kind of gave him a hard time and said, Jesus, people are crushing in on you from all direction. What do you mean who touched you? He said, no, I know someone touched me because power went out for me. And she went to him and said, it was me. And I was healed immediately. But what I love is the next part of the story. Jesus looked at her and said, daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace. And the reason I love that so much, Georgine, is because She sought Jesus for physical healing, but when he looked at her, called her daughter, he esteemed her, he gave her back her worth, he acknowledged that she had kept her faith, and then he gave her a future by saying, go in peace, and he gave her a testimony, and all of these things are gifts that she received from a very painful time in her life that she wouldn't have received if she had not gone through it, and I think that's speaks to all the different listeners who are going through different types of pain. Don't give up on God right before he's about to do something amazing in your life. Mm. You make the point in the book, The Hymn of His Garment, that pain is a giver as well as a taker, and that we should uh, consider flipping the script. How can we frame or reframe our thoughts about pain so that we're open to the startling gifts that God can bring uh, through our pain? Part of flipping the script is recognizing, first of all, where does the pain come from? Because pain lies to us, and pain tempts us to isolate. It tempts us to blame God. And so when we have that temptation to think, God must be punishing me, or God has caused this to happen, we need to turn to Scripture. In Genesis 50, 20, it says, what the enemy intended for harm, God will use for the saving of his people. And when we're tempted to think, God has abandoned me in my suffering. Where is God? I don't hear him. I don't see him. He's not healing me. 
that's when we have to turn to the truth from Deuteronomy 31, 6, that says God never leaves us and never forsakes us. And sometimes we can also believe the lie that no good is going to come out of the situation. But we go back to that verse in Genesis that what the enemy intended for harm, God will bring good from. And he reminds us in Romans 8, 28, that God uses all things together for good, even our painful situations. But we've got to trust him. So we've got to flip the script and realize God is not the author of pain, but he loves us and he's a redemptive God. And if we will trust him, he will bring good out of our pain. Amen. We're going to take a break here in just a moment. We've got news and traffic coming at the top of the hour. And our guest, Dr. Bankson, has agreed to stay for a few more minutes after the news and traffic. So we'll continue our conversation in just a moment. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Hey, welcome back. You're listening to the second hour of The Georgine Rice Show. I'm continuing a conversation I began in the first hour with Dr. Michelle Bingson. She is the author of The Hymn of His Garment, Reaching Out to God When Pain Overwhelms. Dr. Benson is an international speaker, a national and international media resource on mental health, and best-selling award-winning author. She hosts the award-winning podcast, Your Hope-Filled Perspective, a board-certified clinical neuropsychologist in private practice for more than 20 years. She blogs regularly and offers a wide variety of resources on her website, drmichelleb.com. The book we're talking about, The Hymn of His Garment, Reaching Out to God When Pain Overwhelms. Just before the break, we were talking about uh, the fact that God uses um, our seasons of pain to teach us great things. And you in the book make reference to a conversation you had with a friend who challenged you in a season of great pain, asking the question, what if this cancer diagnosis isn't even about you all? Um, what if it's about the people who are going to be impacted by the testimony of your lives as you endure it? And it was such a, a different perspective reminding us that, um, that God is at work in ways that we may not fully appreciate unless we're listening very closely. That is so true. And I, I will never forget the day when she made that statement because I thought, okay, this is an opportunity for us to share the hope that we have in Jesus. And just a month ago, Georgie and I was at my son's wedding doing the mother-son dance. And he took that opportunity then to say, Mom, I want you to know one of the greatest things you ever gave me was the example that you and Dad showed through Dad's cancer of how you trusted God and how I saw other people learn to trust God because of your example. Mm. And I just thought it was all worth it then. And my son saw it, and so he can take it into his marriage. And that's what I said. I hope you and your bride take that example and lean in and trust God, because you will experience hard times in this life, but you don't have to experience them alone. Yeah, and you don't have to despair. Again, quoting from your book, we tend to view pain as a bad thing. God offers us the opportunity to flip the script on pain and learn its value in our lives. And that's not to minimize the the depth and, and agony that pain can oftentimes bring, but there is a redemptive uh, part of it that we don't want to miss in the midst of the struggle. And that's what we have to look for. It is not to minimize pain at all. There have been plenty of nights where my pillow has been tear-stained, but we shared with your listeners before the break how I went through a very devastating health crisis. Well, the first day I went back to my private practice, the first patient that came in, she was bruised and battered, and she shared her own health predicament with me and said, I'm not sure I want to go on living. 
And mm-hmm. I felt like the Lord said, show her. And I don't know if you've ever argued with God, Georgine, but I did in that moment. And I was like, Lord, you've got to be kidding. No, in mental health, we're supposed to be a blank slate for our patients. But I just felt like he said, show her. So I rolled up my sleeve. I showed her my bruised and battered arm. And I told her, there is a reason why you are in my office today. I want you to know that you are seen, you are loved, and there is a future and a plan for your life. You can't give up now. And she wept and she said, I feel like someone has finally seen me in my pain. And Georgine, had I not gone through that experience, I wouldn't have been able to share so authentically with her. Yeah, to comfort others as you yourself have been comforted. Now, waiting for healing can be the hardest part of any illness. If it's a chronic illness, if it's a a fatal illness, whatever the, the emotional or physical pain might be, waiting is the most difficult um, and sometimes God's answers seem long in coming. How do you cope through the waiting, uh, which, again, is a really tests our mettle in the midst of the challenge? It does. And so part of what I do is try not to make any major big decisions in that waiting time because our feelings are good. God gave us our feelings and our emotions, but we don't want to make decisions based off of them. I try really hard not to isolate because pain will tempt us to isolate. And God doesn't want us to isolate. We were designed to be in community. And I also try not to socialize with negative people who will pull me down. It's really hard to stay positive when you're in the midst of a painful situation. But the other thing not to do is to give up because we never know when God is going to bring about that healing. And we don't want to give up right before that comes and miss out on the blessing. But there are things we can do in the midst of our pain. We can remember that we aren't alone. We can get prayerful support from a few trusted individuals that we know. All we have to do is send an SOS or a 911 in a text and we know that they will pray for us. It's important, too, that we forgive others. Not everybody's going to know the right thing to say or do, and sometimes they'll say things that hurt our feelings. So we have to extend grace to them, but we also have to extend grace to ourselves. On those days when we're not able to do what we would normally expect of ourselves, extend grace to yourself like you would to a friend. Make sure that you're meditating on God's Word so that you can fight with God's truth And then I would say, to the degree that you're able, seek someone else to serve. And the reason I say this is because pain tempts us to focus only on ourselves. But Scripture tells us that those who refresh others will themselves be refreshed. And so for you, you may not be able to get out of the home because you're in physical pain, but you could send a text message or send a card or leave a voicemail with a prayer for a friend. And as we encourage others, we in turn end up encouraged, even in the midst of our own pain. At the end of each chapter, you offer some very practical help for those who are struggling uh, in pain. Can you just kind of outline what that is like? For example, you have the uh, the prescription, if you will. You have scripture. Um, You even have a a playlist at the end of a, a chapter. Can you explain a little bit about how the book provides that kind of practical resource to help someone as they struggle? I give a scripture that I've called the hem of this garment because I know many people who are reading the book are in pain. So I want to give them a scripture to hold on to, kind of like the image of the woman reaching for the hem. We need to reach for God and hold on to a scripture. But then I also pray for the reader. I know in some of my deepest, darkest, painful experiences, 
all I've been able to say is Jesus help. And that is enough. But sometimes when you're at a loss of words, I offer that prayer to the reader so that you've got a prayer you can read and know that you've been prayed over. And then I also give a recommended playlist because when I was so ill, I didn't feel like praising God, but I had praise and worship music playing. And when it was playing, I would either sing along or hum along. And scripture tells us God inhabits the praises of his people and Satan can't stand it when we're praising God. So I give you that playlist recommendation so that you can be praising and worshiping God, even in the midst of your pain. And then you will experience a greater presence of the Lord in that pain. Well, Dr. Bingson, I am so grateful that you endured your pain, trusting in God and your story, your example, and your uh, training and in, in helping others uh, to go through this same season, I think is going to be a blessing to many. Once again, the book is titled The Hymn of His Garment and uh, is currently available. It's published by Ravel. Dr. Bengson, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you, I appreciate you. You as well. Bye-bye. Hey, you're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. We'll be back in a moment. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Hey, welcome back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Tomorrow on the program, we'll talk with uh, Dr. Benna Wilkins under the broom tree. It's a look at Elijah and his ministry and the challenges he faced, decisions he had to make to follow God's calling. Well, Oberlin College women's lacrosse coach Kim Russell has been removed from her role after her stance against transgender athletes competing in women's sports flared tension with school administrators. I've been taking out of the role of coach, which is what I've done for 27 years, she told America's Newsroom. I've been a PE teacher, a coach, and a teacher of programs of wellness, yoga, all sorts of things, kickboxing, and been asked to take a role as employee wellness program manager, which would have no contact with students and be creating things, which is paperwork. Well, Russell, who served as head coach for five years at the Ohio Liberal Arts School, says she's been ridiculed by administrators and players after sharing her views on social media on transgender swimmer Leah Thomas' NC2A championship win in 2022. New whistleblower testimony to Congress alleges the Central Intelligence Agency, or CIA, bribed six officers investigating the origins of COVID-19 with hush money to bury their conclusions that the virus likely originated from a Chinese lab. U.S. House lawmakers are on the Select Committee on the Coronavirus Pandemic and Permanent Select Committee on Intelligence said on Tuesday that an anonymous, highly credible senior level CIA official alleged that six members with significant scientific expertise in the federal agency tasked with investigating the roots of SARS-CoV-2 found that the virus likely originated in a Wuhan laboratory. Well, the CIA payoff scheme was reportedly orchestrated by former CIA chief operating officer Andrew Macridis. While the FBI and the Energy Department have concluded that COVID came from a lab, the CIA remains unable to determine the precise origin of the COVID-19 pandemic. Ask yourself, why was the CIA so invested in covering up that COVID came from a lab? That's a rhetorical and open question. Chicago is setting up tents to house an influx of migrants, more than 1,500 of whom have been sleeping in police stations for months. As Mayor Brandon Johnson says, he's open to budget cuts similar to New York City to address the growing crisis. Chicago is projected to spend more than $250 million on migrants this year alone. Chicago and Illinois 
have uh, already allocated $94 million in taxpayer money for migrant housing, and the state budget includes $550 million in taxpayer subsidies for migrants over the age 65 to receive health care. An advisory panel of the Food and Drug Administration stated today that virtually all over-the-counter decongestants simply don't work. The FDA panel found that the um, main drug, the active ingredient in Sudafed, Benadryl, Robitussin, and other popular decongestants is nearly useless at reducing nasal congestion. congestion rather. The advisory panel ruling might soon um, lead to these oral pro- uh, products being pulled off stores' shelves nationwide. The FDA will now need to decide whether to revoke the drug's OTC designation as generally recognized as safe and effective. The designation, typically used for older drugs, allows drug makers to include an ingredient in OTC products without the need to file an FDA application. California lawmakers voted to reverse a ban on government-sponsored travel to mostly Republican-led states with discriminatory laws targeting LGBTQ populations, as they describe it, acknowledging that the policy had failed to stop the surge of legislation across the U.S. The ban enacted in 2017 applied to state agencies, departments, boards, and schools that are part of the University of California and California State University systems. It prohibited them from using state funds to travel to states that had passed laws such as barring transgender people uh, from participating in school sports that did not align with their biological sex or using the bathroom of their gender identity, ultimately affecting 26 states. That has posed a significant challenge to sports teams at public uh, colleges and universities, which have led to had to find alternative funding sources to pay for their road games in states like Arizona and Utah. It's also complicated some of the state's other policy goals, like using state money to pay for people who live in other states to travel to California for abortions which is probably the primary motivation. The reversal on the travel ban comes amid intense political battles across the country, including efforts to impose bans on gender-affirming uh, surgeries and drugs um, barring af- for minors, barring athletes uh, from girls' and women's sports who are biological males, and requiring schools to notify parents if their children ask uh, to use different pronouns or change their gender identity at school without their parents' knowledge or consent. More than 5,000 people are presumed dead and 10,000 missing after heavy rains in northeastern Libya caused two dams to collapse, surging more water into already inundated areas. At least 5,300 people are thought dead, said the interior minister of Libya's eastern government on Tuesday. In the eastern city of Derna, which has seen the worst of the devastation, as many as 6,000 people remain missing. The health minister in Libya's eastern administration said whole neighborhoods are believed to have been washed away in the city. Libya's infrastructure has suffered repeated blows during a civil war that broke out after the fall of Muammar Gaddafi in 2011. The country remains split between uh, rival governments in the east and west, a divide that has fueled confusion over casualty counts and the coordination of a humanitarian response. One of the major reasons why a majority of Americans aren't buying the Bidenomics story is because of what they're experiencing with their bank accounts. For the third straight year, American households' inflation-adjusted median income has fallen. In 2022, median household income 
came in at $74,580, a decrease of 2.3% from 2021, when the number was 76330 Well, despite the fact that wages have grown, sustained high inflation means the cost of everything is increasingly outpacing the wage growth, and Americans are finding themselves getting further and further behind. Demonstrating this unfortunate reality, last year the nation's poverty rate jumped 12.4%, more than doubling from 2020's 5.2% Bidenomics. Speaking of inflation, for the second month in a row, it grew again in August by 0.3%, rising to 3.7% over this time last year. Leading the way on the inflationary increase were energy prices, which rose 5.6% over the prior month, with the price of gas jumping 10.6%. Food prices rose 0.2% and housing costs 0.3%. This upturn in inflation effectively decreased wage earnings by 0.5% on the month. The question is whether the Federal Reserve will continue hiking interest rates, which it has increased by 5.25% since March of last year. On Tuesday, the Government Accountability Office released a report estimating rather that as much as $135 billion in COVID unemployment aid had been stolen by fraudsters. To put it another way, out of every $7 in aid the government handed out, $1 of that was stolen. The GAO faulted both the Trump and Biden administrations for failing to close technical and legal loopholes that were exploited by criminals. Between April of 2020 and May of this year, the time span over which the federal government declared a public health emergency, an estimated 11 to 15 percent of the $900 billion the federal government shelled out in unemployment insurance, was stolen. The Government Accountability Office also noted that the full extent of unemployment fraud during the pandemic will likely never be known. Hey, you're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. For our Seattle listeners, uh, we are out. Hope you have a great evening. Want to thank uh, Pedro Bartz for producing and engineering in Seattle. And thank you for joining us. Portland, stick around. There's more to come. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Hey, welcome back. You're listening to the Portland addendum of The Georgine Rice Show. James Blend producing, Dave King engineering. Well, few things want to cover in this time. The Canadian Holocaust. Did you hear about that? The Canadian Holocaust that never happened? Well, you probably didn't hear the latter part of that. When our national media don't like where a narrative is going, as in anyone assuming Joe Biden is an eager participant in Hunter Biden's influence peddling, they repeat a mantra about no evidence. Biden's critics have no evidence of a Joe Hunter um, corruption connection. But when they like the narrative, like... Arrogant white imperialist Catholics in Canada were so hostile to indigenous peoples that they committed a genocide. Somehow, no evidence is required. Let me fill you in on the details if you haven't followed the story. Well, the wilder, the better. In 2021, a native Canadian tribe claimed that ground-penetrating radar found 215 bodies near a residential school in Kamloops, British Columbia. Within a week, Canadian Prime Minister Justin Trudeau ordered flags across Canada to be flown at half-staff for all the alleged murdered children. I mean, after all, if this is the case, uh, this is a, a, a cause for grief. Well, American media outlets like NPR, no surprise there, forwarded wide, wild allegations from the Canadian Broadcasting Company staining the reputations of two public broadcasters based on unsubstantiated allegations of a mass grave in Cranbrook, British Columbia. Chief Jason Louie of the Lower 
um, band proclaimed, let's call this for what it is. It's a mass murder of indigenous people. Well, then the chief, he really spread the smear brush. The Nazis were held accountable for their war crimes. I see no difference in locating the priests and nuns and the brothers who are responsible for this mass murder to be held accountable for their part in this attempt of genocide of an indigenous people. Well, from there, Murray Sinclair, the former leader of Canada's Truth and Reconciliation Commission on harms that residential schools inflicted on indigenous children from the 19th century to the 1970s, wowed the press by claiming the body count could be 15,000 to 25,000. Well, that number was based on what? Well, it didn't really matter. Well, it did matter, since what quickly followed was a vicious round of vandalism and arson that damaged or destroyed 68 Christian churches in Canada. Now, fast forward to the 31st of August, when the New York Post reported no actual human remains had been found in Canada. No remains, despite the mass graves hysteria. A Native Canadian tribe excavated 14 sites below Our Lady of Seven Sorrows Church in Manitoba and found exactly zero corpses. Well, that initial founding in Kamloops, well, there uh, have still been no excavations, only the ground-penetrating radar guessing of anomalies in the soil. Now, how could journalists spread a panic with no physical evidence? Well, sometimes it works, sometimes it doesn't. Sometimes it serves a narrative, sometimes it doesn't. Well, truth lost and retribution crowded out reconciliation. The word hoax is in the breeze. Justin Trudeau looks like a leader of QAnon, or as one person put it, QAnonada. Well, in 2014, Bill Donahue of the Catholic League wrote about a mass graves hysteria in Ireland around the claim of that 18 or rather 800 bodies were found outside a home Catholic nuns used to operate near Galway. There, too, the Catholics were equated with the Nazis committing a Holocaust. There was no mass grave, but people are still too willing to believe the worst about priests and nuns and their easily assumed Catholic collaborators in heinous crimes. Unless you think it's just priests and nuns, it wasn't just Catholic churches that were trashed uh, most recently with this um, misinformation. There's a word for this. It's prejudice, defined in the dictionary as preconceived opinion that is not based on reason or actual experience. And yet it prevailed. And all too often we're seeing that uh, being carried out all across the, uh, the globe. Well, California lawmakers on Friday passed a proposed law that would require judges in the state to consider a parent's acceptance or affirmation of a child's gender identity when weighing child custody disputes. The assembly approved the measure and sent it to the governor's desk on a party line vote of 57 to 16 with a handful of Democrats not voting. When two parents get divorced in California and cannot agree on child custody, the decision is ultimately left up to the judge. No surprise there. Judges have to weigh a variety of factors when determining custody. Lawmakers supporting the measure said gender affirmation would not only um, factor judges um, be a factor that judges would consider, um, but it was uh, it has now become the law. Well, Democratic Assembly member Lori Wilson, who wrote the bill, has said she has a transgender child. She has maintained the legislation is meant to protect the health and well-being of trans kids, while noting the proposal doesn't require parents to move forward with gender-affirming health care. Well, this doesn't put a thumb on the scale of one parent, Wilson told lawmakers of the 
Assembly on the floor on Friday. It merely asks judges to consider this one factor. Republicans argue that judges in California already have the discretion to consider this factor in custody cases and noted the term affirmation is not defined in the proposed law. Well, this trans conversation is very complicated and delicate. I do think there are parents who have different viewpoints, said one assemblyman, a Republican from Riverside, especially young children who don't know who they are. I think parents have to be given the space to go on that journey with their child. End quote. Governor Gavin Newsom, he has until the 14th of October to sign or veto that particular piece of legislation. And we will certainly follow that to see what's uh, what will happen in California, although we have been following California and it is distressing. In other news, almost 100 years ago, the great American author Sinclair Lewis, he wrote a political novel. It was called It Can't Happen Here. Well, the 1935 book was a warning that what was happening then in Europe, the rise of fascism and Nazism, could come to America in the form of Hitler-type politician who gets elected and then becomes a dictator. Well, though the power of the federal government has grown enormously since FDR's days, we never became a totalitarian country like the fictional one Lewis imagined. But out there in California, where parents, public schools, and the state government are fighting over who has the ultimate control of children, we're starting to resemble a country from the old evil Soviet empire. In the latest court case, a judge ruled that the Chino Valley Unified School District has to delay the enforcement of its new policy that requires its schools to notify parents if their child indicates that they identify as transgender or gender nonconforming. The case, which is on its way to higher levels of the state's court system, has been described in the Los Angeles Times as a fight pitting parental rights and student privacy rights. Now, I'm not sure when student privacy became an actual right, but nonetheless, that's what the battle lines have been drawn around. Well, the school district's lawyers argue sensibly that the parents of a student who identifies as transgender should be involved in any discussion of gender-related issues. Well, the lawyers in the state's attorney's general's office, however, argue against immediate parental involvement. They say vulnerable kids who are questioning their gender identity need time to get emotionally ready before they talk to their parents, and that school teachers can help the process. Well, the Chino case is just the latest example of the state government trying to take control of children from parents. Well, in June, a bill passed in the lower chamber of the California legislature compels parents to provide their kids with gender affirming care. It also would require judges to divorce in divorce cases, as I mentioned a moment ago, to set aside uh, rather to side with the parent who most affirms the child's preferred identity. Now, whether or not the child is identifying as something other than their biological sex may not be the factor. But in the case that this issue were to arise in the future, well, the earlier uh, earlier this year, rather, a bill was proposed that would amend an old state law that let kids as young as 12 leave home and consent to live in a group home without their parents involvement or their knowledge. The bill AB 65, which its opponents correctly call state sanctioned kidnapping, is stuck somewhere in the sausage-making process and is touted as a way to help kids with mental health issues, particularly gender-related ones. And, of course, parents can't be trusted to walk them through the process. What the state government here is trying to do to parents of school kids reminds me of what happened to Carl and Sandy in 1984 when they escaped from what was then called Czechoslovakian Soviet Socialist Republic. 
They escaped with their one-year-old child, lived in Austria for a year, and came to Los Angeles without knowing how to speak English or having any money. Sandy stayed home with their child. Carl got a job in the kitchen at the Disneyland Hotel, began working his way up to eventually becoming a successful contractor specializing in kitchens. Meanwhile, the communist government in Czechoslovakia put Carl and Sandy on trial for stealing state property. The property? Their child. The government's thugs beat up Carl's father, but he wouldn't tell where his son and grandson were. Carl and Sandy were found guilty of stealing government property and given sentences of 25 and 20 years, respectively, which they would have had to serve if they ever went back to their communist homeland. This is what scares me. The government of California, like other state governments, is undermining the control of parents and essentially saying that children belong to the state and it knows what's best for them, not the parents. Sinclair Lewis showed in his uh, fiction how dictatorial uh, things can happen here. And I think um, already really is here. Quick break. We'll be back. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Hey, welcome back. You're listening to the final segment of the Georgine Rice Show. One quick heads up tomorrow on the program, we're going to talk with Bina E. Wilkins. Dr. Wilkins is the author of Under the Broom Tree. Uh, she writes about anxiety and depression of the prophet Elijah and what we can learn from his example. He was uh, the most profound prophet of his era, in fact, of the entire uh, Old Testament, but he suffered in these ways, and we can learn something from him and something about the God he entrusted his life to. That's coming up tomorrow on the Georgine Rice Show. Well, there is a pandemic in the Western world, and no, I'm not talking about that, especially, but not only in America, that a few are talking about, let alone addressing. Well, this pandemic doesn't actually kill people, but it does destroy people. It ruins lives. It crushes families and causes permanent debilitating pain far more than have the vast majority of cases of COVID-19. Well, this pandemic consists of adult children who have decided never again to speak to one or both of their parents. The vast majority of these people were never sexually or physically abused. In fact, nearly all were loved by their parents. It's a phenomenon. So then why have these people decided to hurt their mother, their father, or both in one of the worst ways possible? There are three primary reasons we're now being told. The first is the ascent of the therapeutic mentality. Prior to the explosion of psychotherapy, people were governed by shoulds. Beginning in the 1960s, however, the therapeutic model replaced the moral model as the guide to one's behavior. People who lived at that time will recall the phrase, there are no shoulds. To use a family story to illustrate the point, despite the fact that his mother was a very difficult woman, Dennis Prager says his father called her every night. Every night she would yell at him. He could hear the yelling through the phone because instead of holding it to his ear, his father would place the phone on the kitchen table while she ranted. Had his father been born a generation later and gone to a therapist where he discussed his mother, if he said how much he dreaded calling his mother, the therapist would likely have led his father to believe there are no, there is no reason for him to continue to talk to her. And a culture that declared there are no shoulds would have concurred. The therapist would have declared his uh, grandmother, the man's uh, uh, grandmother, uh, rather toxic and thereby given uh, his father the green light to avoid calling her altogether. But Dennis Prager's father lived in an age of shoulds. And he was a religious Jew who had been taught the Ten Commandments since childhood. 
the fifth of which commands us, honor your father and mother. Also, he believed, as did most Americans, that the Ten Commandments were given by God. Well, that was then. What about now? Well, in our post-biblical age, there is no commandment to adhere to. There are no Ten Commandments. In fact, there are no commandments, period. That's what no shoulds was really all about. No commandments. Instead, you do what you feel is right. You know, what's right in your own eyes. If you don't feel like talking to your mother or father, you don't. Prager's father, governed by the Ten Commandments and many other shoulds, called his mother every night, despite the fact that he rarely felt like doing so, and she abused him in the calls. Although the Bible commands us to love our neighbor, love the stranger, and love God, there is no commandment to love our parents. On the other hand, there is no commandment to honor anyone except our parents. Well, the second reason for the ignore parents pandemic of parental alienation This is usually caused by one parent against the other during and or after a divorce, frequently, though certainly not always, by the mother against the father. She's so angry at her husband or soon-to-be ex-husband that she has decided to hurt him in one of the worst possible ways, by convincing one or more of their children that their father is a terrible human being. And by the way, in some cases, that may be the case of either the father or the mother. Unworthy of their love, respect, and time. The children should therefore not only cease to love him, but have nothing to do with him. And again, there are cases where that should be the case. A third reason for the IP uh, pandemic is ideological. In these instances, a spouse may be involved, but often it's the decision of the child. This is the newest reason for ignoring parents. I suspect few of us ever encountered parents whose children didn't speak to them because, because of how the parent voted. As much as Democrats and other liberals hated Richard Nixon, it's hard to imagine a grown man or woman in the late 60s or early 70s refusing to speak to a parent because their parents voted for Nixon. But there are probably hundreds of thousands of parents who voted for Donald Trump who have a child who will not speak to them because of that vote or because the parent holds some conservative values such as that of marriage between one man and one woman. For the record, This is happening more often than one would expect. Yes, there are times when a parent is so pathological and evil or when it is the parent who has chosen to ignore the child that communication is essentially impossible. But in general, and this is in general, the infliction of such pain on a parent is about as great an act of cruelty as most people will ever inflict on another human being. If there is a God who gave the Ten Commandments and there is a God who gave the Ten Commandments, these people will be judged Accordingly, well, Dennis Prager, a faithful uh, and orthodox Jew, suggests that this is a, a a pandemic in our culture today. It's challenging for us with all of the many messages swirling around what is right. And we tend to do what's right in our own eyes rather than opening God's word and seeking what he says we ought to do, what we should do. As many of you know, for the last 20 plus years, I've been Uh, the caregiver for my mother, who is now 92 years old. It is the most difficult assignment I've ever been given, and yet it's the most rewarding assignment I've ever been given. Now, those two things happen often simultaneously. Sometimes I'm so exhausted I can't imagine continuing. Since uh, her prolonged uh, illness, uh, pneumonia, at the turn of the, uh, the new year, her capacities have declined rather dramatically, and it requires that She needs much more care and attention. I now cook all of her meals. I 
cleaner home. I do all of the dishes. I pay all of the bills. I'm responsible for her prescriptions, for her doctor's appointments, and all of the other details that are attendant to a 92-year-old. But along with that, engaging in regular conversation, giving her things to look forward to. I love my mother, but it's a challenge, as any caregiver will tell you. The Ten Commandments are relevant today because it expresses what's important to God. And if you have parents, even if it's difficult to relate to them, let me encourage you in this area and in every other area of life to consider what does God's word say? What would he have me do to honor this only uh, pair that the scripture says we are obliged to honor? And that is our parents. And again, as Prager suggested, there are some exceptions, but we need to be very careful about writing them off unless God has given us uh, the freedom to do so. All right. Well, we're out of time. I do want to thank James Blend, our producer, Dave King for engineering. And thank you for making the Georgine Rice Show part of your day. Tomorrow, a conversation with Dr. Bina Wilkins, the author of Under the Broom or the Under the Broom Tree. Let's get that all in there. The Anxiety and Depression of the Prophet Elijah. Hope you'll join us. Have a great night. Thanks for listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. If you'd like more information on today's guests, please visit the show at kpdq.com. And like us on Facebook. And join us live every weekday at 4 for more critical thinking for critical times on 93.9 KPDQ. Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal records of the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.